Is That a Convenient Time? The podcast recorded next to the Supreme Court of South Australia. Dear listeners, welcome back to episode five with me, Darren Blight KC. How are you, Darren? Very well, Scott. Pleasure to be back in your chambers on Will Mellor's podcast. <laughs> we can say that because young Will Mellor, not here. Where is he, Darren? Well, I'm told that he's uh, in Italy on the Amalfi Coast, um, somewhere around there. No, it's, I think it's southern Italy. He's gone down there oh. for a, uh, a friend's wedding. And even though he's got a young toddler, he's mm. gone with his wife and son's toddler. So free and clear for 10 days in Italy. How's, how's that? Would you would you like a bit of that? Living the dream there. And I'm a little bit confused about Will Miller. I mean, last episode, there was a comment um, that you made about solvency concerns about the junior bar. And here we have Will heading off overseas, gallivanting, uh, having a lovely time. Clearly no stress or, or financial pressure in his practice. Clearly he's doing enormously well. But uh, I, And I did text him uh, the other day, see how he's going on. Um, I think he said uh, everything was going marvellously. He was sitting down just about to have a Negroni. So that's Very nice. Absolutely lovely. But we thought we'd push on in any event in Will's absence because there's been a few things happening around the – Around the traps. So and this, this one's going to be a, a quick fire, less uh, legally dense uh, episode, oh, would you say? I think so. Um, I'm always legally dense, yeah, irrespective we'll, of that. Will's, but- Will's the brains of the operations. <laughs> we, we just fluff around a bit, don't we? Um, so we're a duo today as opposed to a trio, and I'd like to think we're a dynamic duo, which I think makes me, what, Robin? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, well, let's, let's go with that. Um, so I'll be... I suppose by necessity, Batman. Um, Batman was a scientist. Yeah, Batman was a scientist. But I think we'll be more agile today, don't you think? Yeah, yeah. A segue right back to episode one and following episode, we made the comment uh, that there were things happening around our court precinct and seemed to be a hotbed of activity. You've nailed that. A hotbed of activity. Lots um, of things going on. There's things going wrong, uh, potential danger and excitement every day in the courts. Exactly, exactly. It's a hotspot of, of all of the above. And on that theme, it's come to my attention that there's been flooding in the Joint Law Courts building in Sydney in Queen Square. And it occurred to me that the strange goings on in South Australia's court precinct is not limited just to South Australia. It is happening interstate. So what happened recently, according to the New South Wales Bar Association, the Supreme Court uh, website as well, there was a major flooding event due to a broken pipe on level 19 affecting all floors in the building, which uh, meant that there was all sorts of uh, disruption to listings, including a five-day court of appeal hearing and and other matters that affected both civil and uh, criminal uh, hearings. Well, that's interesting. So that, I mean, do we know the cause of that? Does it disclose? The- it doesn't disclose the cause. Can, so I, can I take a guess? You can guess, Scott. I reckon- It's your podcast. <laughs> what about this? I suspect that a barrister has had a hearing going not so well <laughs> and behind the bar table has, has mm-hmm. set a small fire. <laughs> and um, and that's caused smoke and that's caused the sprinklers to go off and uh-huh. immediate adjournment yes. because of flooding. So that's- yes. Yeah, possibly. I mean, I must admit I hadn't thought of that. I was probably thinking a little bit more traditional and orthodox, which was uh, maybe uh, just a pipe actually just simply breaking. Oh. Um, but, you know, you're a little bit more creative. 
than I am. But in any event, it does seem that these strange goings-on uh, are not limited to um, South Australia. So what's going to happen next? I mean, I mean, is there going to be a fire? We hope not. Um, is there going to be other injuries? Is there going to be some sort of issue with the library? Well, you know, I, you well, can't get into the library. Well, I hope not. I mean, looking now as I turn around at the 1970s library building, which dominates our view here in Nexus Chambers, one could only uh, expect that there might be some structural <laughs> issues with that. Mm. Some, there is some cracking on the side. Mm. Um, but it did get me thinking with the flooding in the law courts building in um, Queen Square in Sydney. It, it got me thinking about this, Scott, and that is if we had a flood or flooding incident in chambers here and you only had time to choose one thing to take out of chambers, uh, what would you choose? Tough Call uh, a little bit difficult to flood a, a chambers on a third floor, but um, if there had to be one thing apart from the obvious and the boring, oh, the South Australian law reports. I mean, the, the, you don't want to be without zelling Joe's judgments uh, for a moment, really. No, I think, well, you might grab uh, volume 37 of the state law reports, which has got Cadlunga in oh, it. Oh, Cadlunga. Yes. When you speak to anyone out of the state and say, oh, do a Cadlunga list, no idea what's going on. No. Um, if I had to choose something rushing out in a flood, um, I don't think there's any doubt about this. I would grab Volume 1, Civil Procedure, LUN. <laughs> <laughs> it's not LUN anymore. <laughs> Same diff. Um, oh, moving off flooding. Um, other things happening today, it's a beautiful day actually here in Adelaide, a spring day on what it is, the 22nd of September. Well, it's a Friday. It's a Friday. My, and my injunction has gone, gone off this afternoon, so I, I'm as happy as Larry. Don't? Just the relief of the timetabling orders. Yeah, that's good, right. It's good advocacy. <laughs> um, the other uh, thing that's been dominating the news today on the 22nd of September is uh, Rupert Murdoch, Scott. So 92, what, five years old, older than you? Um, <laughs> that doesn't get old, never literally. Gets old. So, 90, so first of all, Good innings, whatever you think of him, he's had energy to be the chairman of the board since, well, seventy for 70 years. Mm. So I had a look at his history. I had a look at the New York Times article on him today. So obviously he did start in Adelaide. He was he was heir to the controlling interest in in the news newspaper at the time. So he, he started off a relatively wealthy person, but then just went on an acquisition spree over decades of building this behemoth. Mm. Um, and of course, you like. Um, it was started off in Adelaide, of course. Started but off in Adelaide. You you have theories about whether the Succession TV show might be in part based upon the Murdoch family. Well, I think they're yours, Darren. Um, <laughs> or, so or the general media. You're a big fan of Succession. You got me into the show, mm. and I've watched it too. Ex- excellent TV show, but pretty plainly based on the Murdoch. Seems, it seems to be very similar. Right wing news. Channels, media interests, the corporate structure, the trust uh, issue between the um, the wife and the children, yep. uh, the chairman issue, the oldest son, second oldest son issues. Well, here, so the article about um, Murdoch said that he's got four children, two boys and two girls, and uh, obviously Lachlan has been chosen by him as a successor. But the four of them have the controlling interest in in the conglomerate and any three of them can band together to to essentially control. So interesting times when he so Rupert has the controlling share at the moment and when he passes as 
he must eventually. It will be down to the four kids. So succession right there before mm. our very eyes. Um, the other thing I was thinking too, just off of Rupert Murdoch, I mean, one of the things we're going to talk about from a legal perspective in a moment is um, uh, some comments about briefing counsel. But before we get there, in terms of other things that have been happening recently, Scott, I think you picked up that halls are bringing back sarsaparilla. Exciting news. So not just sarsaparilla, but oh. but including sarsaparilla. Hall sarsaparilla, the brand name Halls is coming back. So there's probably lemonade, there's a cola, South Australian icon. This is exciting, isn't it? Exciting. Because yeah. what are your views on uh, spiders? <laughs> <laughs> I haven't been asked that question in a while. Um, but Do think, you like spiders? Thinking about it uh, now off the cuff, um, I love them. Yeah. So what you can't get enough spiders, and you can't get yeah. enough of the delicious cream. So for those younger members, um, you've got you've got your scoop of ice cream. Yep. And you've got is it typically lemonade, or it could be anything? Well, it can be a mixture of raspberry and lemonade. It can be cola. Yeah. Uh, typically, ice cream. You can also throw in some traditional cream. Yep. I think there's a rookie error with drinking a spider where you go in too hard too early with the spoon and the straw and you start to mix it up and it becomes a little bit too sort of creamy initially. You've got to find that ratio, that good solid ratio between cream and soft drink. You speak of a man who has um, possibly created a, a spider relatively recently, Darren. Yeah, you're also talking to the man who often walks down to the market to the Scala Bakery and buys a sausage roll for lunch. So <laughs> my tastes, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, beverage tastes and um, savoury tastes are relatively basic. I, I, I'm sure my six-year-old daughter doesn't know what a spider is, <laughs> but now that you've mentioned it, I think I might, uh, to probably my wife's horror, introduce her to a to a spider this weekend and just watch, and just watch the eyes. You know, see, as she thinks about the combination of ice cream and, and lemonade mm. and um, Just that uh, that youthful excitement about drinking your first spider. I mean, you've got the yeah, get that on the video on the iPhone. Before we pass off oh. drinks, though, um, that pub crawl. In- <laughs> pub crawl. I'm wondering how those two blokes are going from yeah. the last episode. Yeah, yeah. Um, spiders put me in mind of shandies. When's the last time you had a shandy? So half beer, half lemonade, which is actually delightful for this weather. The last time I had a shandy would have been at the Kensington uh, Lawn Tennis and Bowling Club in about 1994. There we go. That, I and it cost probably less than a dollar. And when you've been uh, out in the hot sun and just, you know, the athlete that I am and you come in hot and sweaty <laughs> and tired, a shandy actually does hit the spot. Exactly, because you're um, it's not full-strength beer. You've got a bit of sugar coming. It's a sensible lemonade. drink for after vigorous exercise. If you like this podcast, or even if you don't, please consider making a donation to JusticeNet or become a friend for as little as $10 a month. All contributions are tax deductible. Head over to justicenet.org.au and look for the donate button. They're doing extremely important work and even a modest contribution will help. That's justicenet.org.au. I'm wondering, Scott, whether we move on to something more legal and something that obviously comes up in our practice uh, all the time, briefing counsel, and, and whether we might just have a, um, a chat today on the podcast about some tips and traps um, uh, about briefing counsel. Good idea. As an introduction or perhaps an anterior um, comment before we get into that topic properly, um, because it does relate to this, I, I, we should mention that the Court of Appeal have had some success 
Yes. In the High Court. What's happened there? That, so this is the Keogh the cost Keogh, agreement so case. The, the Keogh cost agreement case, uh, special leave to appeal has been refused uh, on the basis that no arguable ground of appeal had been mm. articulated. So this was a case where the solicitors and the counsel acting for Keogh, who was incarcerated for um, nearly decades um, before being released, sought their fees from their former client and the issue was whether they were entitled to because they had um, and whether or not they had enforceable cost agreements with Mr Keogh and ultimately the holding of the Court of Appeal was what is that they did not. First, because um, cost agreements of that like in criminal matters were arguably against public policy, but just on the on the terms of the putative cost agreement, the the relevant trigger event didn't happen. So, so that was bad luck for that solicitor and those uh, that counsel, and they appealed that. And um, as I say, special leave denied by the High Court. So it's important to recognise when the, uh, the Court of Appeal are upheld. Was this a this was the judgment of um, the President and Justice Doyle and Bleeby. And this was both solicitors' fees and counsel fees. And it the was late Kevin Borick, I think, for memory. Correct. Yes, that's right. Um, well, I suppose um, uh, that is, uh, I guess, another end, at least uh, one aspect uh, or closing of a chapter of the Keogh matter that that has come to an end in the High Court refusing the application for special leave. Mm-hmm. And I can see why that is a, a good segue into briefing council. We probably don't need today, Scott, on this uh, dynamic duo podcast to talk about the financial and cost agreement side of it. That's probably best for a separate episode, uh, cost disclosure by solicitors, uh, cost disclosure as part of that from from council. Perhaps, so, yes. perhaps um, save, save to say that I think times are past when council didn't have cost agreements. I think it's a good mm. idea to have them, one that complies with the, I think it's Schedule 3 of the Legal Practitioners Act now. So It is, and we certainly here at our chambers, um, we might have subtle differences between our written retainer letters, but have a fairly standard retainer agreement that we provide to our solicitors when we are brief, which includes reference to the Legal Practitioners Act and also the um, bar rules in particular, I think for memory it's Rule 105 regarding returning of briefs. Correct. So let's pass over cost agreements. Um, so mm. some tips and comments about briefing barristers. I, I suppose we should say, of course, we are barristers. So there's no doubt another side to this. Maybe we should get a solicitor on and they can give us some tips about how barristers ought to go communicating with solicitors because I'm sure there'll be another side. Yeah, I think communication is very important in our profession generally. I think that's probably stating the obvious, but it's particularly important that there be good communication between barristers and solicitors about a whole range of things during the course of the uh, the retainer. We uh, see that as the genesis of so many problems, don't you? Because mm. uh, people get the wrong assumptions or expectations about a matter, and especially with fees, if you let things mm. fester or you don't bill often enough. Well, of course, you and I both know through our years of um, service on the Professional Responsibility Committee for the South Australian Bar Association that the number one uh, complaint, even an informal complaint or inquiry relates to uh, fees, non-payment of fees. And often when you drill down into that, it becomes fairly apparent that it's a lack of communication um, regarding fees um, and payment of fees. But precisely. So so no one should be um, you know, uncomfortable about broaching that subject with a 
mm. the barrister as a, as the instructing solicitor and, and vice versa, the barrister should make topics such as fees very mm. clear um, mm. and if there's a problem because the client isn't paying, that should be mm. brought to the fore very quickly. I mean, I, I've had some matters where, I mean, I'm sure we all have, where bills haven't been paid for several months and it's become a real problem um, not just because there's uh, the amount of fees have been increased and there's a big bill due, but because in one sense the client, if, if it's not paying regularly, it isn't feeling the real cost of litigation. And so, mm. and I've often thought that can manifest in the type of instructions given. So if if it doesn't, if if instructions, for example, to be aggressive in cases are mm. given and you're not paying the costs of that aggressiveness, then um, things can very quickly spiral out of control. So, yes. Yeah. Um, I've certainly had that experience in my practice as well, particularly when it relates to settlement discussions. If the clients are not paying on time, or alternatively there is a particular cost arrangement between the client and the solicitors, they're not feeling what I would put sort of you know, bluntly as the financial pain, which then influences uh, how aggressive they are in settlement discussions or how realistic if they don't see the the, the amount of money coming out of their bank account to pay their solicitors and barristers. Yep. One of the reasons um, we thought we might uh, have a quick discussion today on the podcast about briefs to counsel or briefing counsel more generally is another thing that we notice quite often in our practice and it's been emerging over the last probably five to ten years, if not longer, but it's certainly prolific now in the last uh, sorry, two or three years and partly because of the changes to our practice and the restrictions because of COVID, but that's electronic briefs. Yep. Um, and I thought maybe the best part place to start from my perspective about the actual brief to counsel is I thought I'd make some comments by going back to where I started in my practice, which was at Warden Partners, which I've mentioned on the podcast before. It was drilled into me when I started out as a first year lawyer at Warden Partners. And I started out particularly in common law, uh, motor vehicle accident matters, that it was essential to get the brief right. But the firm actually had for the physical brief strict rules about the composition of the brief. And so the first document inside, let's just say it's a typical leverage folder, first document inside the folder is the note or memorandum to counsel, mm -hmm. brief recitation of the facts, the issues uh, arising on the pleadings if you actually are in proceedings and invariably back then you, you were, you would have then behind that the pleadings, court pleadings, behind that you would have documents regarding liability, so motor vehicle reports, witness statements, Sometimes witness statements might be separated into a separate category. There might then be behind that miscellaneous documents relating to liability. Then you would have a separate category, and this is all chronological order as well, uh, for quantum. And so that sounds relatively simple, but when you think about it, it has that logic to it so that when you're briefing counsel, you can say, well, um, and particularly when you have that first conference with counsel, you're all working from the same brief, so both Warden partners, you would have that identical brief that council had. It would be paginated, and you would have those orthodox uh, components to the to the brief. Now, that's a relatively straightforward example of a common law type of brief, but it gave structure at a very early stage to the relationship between the council and and solicitor, but also for two other reasons: one, for the giving of the advice by council. But secondly, if it was, say, more of a commercial matter when you met the client for the first time, um, 
And so that's where I, and as I said, it was drilled into me that that was what a brief to council was. Yep. So a few things come out of that. So first of all, the memorandum to council. So you don't see them much anymore, albeit they're incredibly helpful. One, because it shows and demonstrates that the solicitor has turned their minds to to the issues. And of course, it provides early signposts when you pick up a brief, mm. what to be looking for. So mm. you see them sometimes, but not that often anymore. The second thing I took out of that was the structure of the brief, the thought is given to mm. it. So you see a wide variety of quality of initial briefs, one where a lot of thoughts being given and, and frankly, where not um, is given and you get some pile of documents at, mm. at the worst case. And you make your own brief. And, and you make your own brief. Third is I've always found it helpful to have be working from the same document or for the same brief as the instructing solicitor. So you can say, look, have a look at the document behind tab 19 mm. um, and you can both go there. You don't have to on the telephone look for two minutes for the for five minutes for the document um, mm. working from the same brief. Yeah, I agree with all that, and they're good practical tips which sometimes are honoured more in the breach rather than the observance. And the other important thing about the common brief is the advice. So if you are giving an advice on um, prospects, for example, or to give my motor vehicle example, the advice on liability and or quantum, you might also be giving an advice on evidence. So this might be a brief that doesn't change dramatically for a year or two. So if you have common pagination and and tabs, so see document X at page Y, that obviously is a um, important thing to to have and 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 have the efficiency of that. You the mean- memorandum of counsel um, that's a little bit of a bugbear of mine. It certainly doesn't happen. Certainly not in the orthodox way that I was taught how to do it. Sometimes that can be replaced by an email where the solicitors might email you with their views about particular issues that arise in the case and and evidence issues that may arise. Um, It might be supplemented um, by a research memorandum, uh, some relevant cases or commentary. But if the work is done up front in that respect and you have the parameters around the advice that you've been asked to give. Secondly, if you're also advised, uh, beg your pardon, retained to not only advise but to appear, specifically what needs to be done for the hearing, whether it's a trial, an, an appeal or an interlocutory hearing. Two two things as to that. So advice on evidence, you mentioned that. I, I think mm. they are very useful documents early on um, because it's tempting to save that exercise, one for discovery and then for when you compile the tender book, but by certainly by the compilation of the tender book or the index stage, you're you're running around pre-trial and it's 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 way down the road in the litigation. So if there's something critical, a critical document that you, that should be there, or you need some kind of um, further evidence, oral evidence. I mean, mm. it it's really helpful to have it at the start because obviously, as you know, these cases are won and lost often on a handful of key documents. And if you don't have one of the key documents, you can't really mm. give any useful advice from the start. So the advice on evidence is, you know, letting everyone know where lacunas exist in evidence, what should be obtained. And it starts you very early on in identifying the gaps and the holes in your case. Um, and it becomes pretty obvious if there's problems or indeed if there are strengths. So it's, it's an excellent idea early on. Yeah. 
And even uh, the solicitor's own views or observations about the evidence are important when briefing counsel and and to set that out in the memorandum to counsel yeah. and the brief itself. For example, there may be an issue that as part of proof of the case, there is an issue with respect to whether certain records um, can be tendered and um, obviously are you looking at common law or, or we're talking Evidence Act, uh, state or federal and that is helpful to counsel to have that drawn to your attention. There might be an issue about a signature on a document. There might be some specific uh, idiosyncratic evidence issue which um, you uh, have brought to your attention, which you then take into account as part of your advice and the overall strategy. And I think the best briefs do that. And the best briefs um, as well, apart from setting all that out in, and um, uh, witness statements and so forth, if there is a particular issue of law that's important. It might be a contract matter and there might be a particular issue about uh, repudiation, for example, to the extent to which there is some thought and some work put into uh, the relevant principles, not just um, simply reciting what might be in a textbook, but actually turning your mind to how that law applies and how that issue might be resolved on the facts of the case. Mm. You mentioned a bugbear before and we've got to be careful this doesn't just become a, a gut a gut's ache of uh, barristers. But um, my bugbear is the absence of witness statements from clients. So I can't recall the last time I saw a, a witness statement or a file note of the client included with a brief or indeed mm-hmm. prepared before the time for affidavits if evidence is to be given in mm-hmm. writing. Perhaps the one exception to that is where you have criminal solicitors who might be doing a bit of civil work or perhaps personal injury solicitors who are generally pretty good in giving a basic file note. But it seems to me that a client comes to you, they tell you a story, they give you some documents. One of the first things you ought to be doing is dictating or drafting a file note of that communication because it's going to be pretty critical to know their evidence and what they say about the matter. It doesn't have to be particularly detailed or fancy or an admissible language, but just a file note about what the client says orally um, so that you can get a sense of um, of what they're saying. So, I mean, to the extent possible, I think that should be included in every brief. It, it, it should be a file note that's held by, after an initial consultation by the solicitor anyway. And it's so helpful, you know, knowing knowing what the client is going to say, at least in rough terms from the very start. So I, I'd encourage that to the extent I, I can. I'd agree with that. And could I just add two um, quick observations on that same topic or similar to that topic? The first one is obviously it's horses for courses um, with respect to the type of brief because we're talking more about a fulsome brief in a matter that's either in proceedings or pre-proceedings where there's issues about liability, um, advice about um, prospects and advice on evidence where you tend to have um, a fuller brief to advise Mm. as opposed to a more limited retainer, um, uh, which will be a smaller brief to appear, say, for example, on a um, subpoena or a a further and better, better discovery application. So it is horses for courses. But certainly when you're advising on merit, one would like to see signed witness statements or at least something that is akin to a final version, even if it hasn't been signed by the client or the relevant witness. 
And your observation about um, criminal practitioners, I actually had a recent experience in a common law matter where I, that actually did happen, where there was a very clear attention to detail with respect to evidence, uh, which I think is consistent with their everyday uh, exposure to more evidence-related yeah. matters. And, well, the, well, the, and that's their wheelhouse too. Correct. Um, so, in, Including identif- identifying an issue about tender of a particular document it was a state matter, so under the Evidence Act, uh, that was very helpful as counsel to actually have that drawn to your attention, but not only drawn to your attention, but also a view expressed. Because ultimately, briefs to counsel and briefing counsel, and let's say this is a contested matter that can go for a year, two years, three years, sometimes even longer, may even go to appeal. You are a team, and whatever help you can get from your team, whether it's your junior counsel, your solicitor or your client, more experts, more the better. A team effort is is very important. So if people are, even if it's ideas that you initially think don't have merit and then you reflect on them and say, well, they do have merit, is important to, to um, uh, be coming up with different ideas and also drafting uh, as well yeah. um, as a team. So we would like to think that we know a lot about the law, but of course we don't know everything. We're not like Cadlunga lists. Cadlunga lists, but it is about help and um, and ultimately that's um, relevant too for keeping costs down and being efficient. Just on your point about ideas and having a go, I, mean, I, I don't think you'd ever say that a solicitor, including a junior solicitor, coming forward with an idea, mm. even if it's wrong, mm. um, ultimately if it's wrong. Or, or a question. A, a, a question. Why are we doing it that way? I remember when I was a junior solicitor, I mean, you be a little bit intimidated when you mm. briefed us, especially a senior counsel or indeed just a counsel. And you'd you'd not want to say anything because you might be feel, uh, thought you know silly or, or or saying the wrong thing. I, I that that shouldn't exist. I I think you, if you have an idea, I think it ought to be voiced and mm. um, it can be discussed. If it's wrong, then um, so be it. Then just to finish up and um, wrap up, and I know we've been talking of reasonably general way about briefing to counsel. Maybe two matters to conclude. The Scott, what's your view after you have received the brief to counsel? What ordinarily do you recommend happen? After you receive it? Correct. Well, I suppose you is this a trick question? You read it? <laughs> <laughs> assume, you, assume you've read it. Um uh, you do you confer with the client initially or without the oh, client? No, look my pre- I don't People may differ on this, but I, I confer without the client because I, I think that, one, you need to be able to say things without the client present, including things adverse to the case. You need to mm-hmm. ask the solicitor whether what's being said by the client passes the pub test, if I can put it like that. The so pub, I, The pub crawl test. The, the pub crawl test. Uh, so I have a strong preference that the client not be certainly involved in the first conference but I think a conference, whether it be by telephone or now Teams, you're a big fan of Teams, aren't you, Darren? Zoom? Um, well, I'm, <laughs> or in I'm a big form of all electronic communication <laughs> and video conferencing. What about um, any views that you hold or recommendations you would make about uh, physical aspects of briefs, things that you hate in briefs um, and also any views about the best way of managing electronic documents and electronic briefs? Yep. Okay. So um, I, my personal preference is to have both a physical and an electronic version mm-hmm. of the brief, um, electronic, so that I can don't have to haul masses of documents um, home and back to chambers all the time. 
Also, it's just very convenient to be able to pull up um, four or five documents on a screen at once. But I don't think you should do without. Some solicitors have said, well, here's the electronic brief and um, even push back on a physical brief. But I I think that's difficult. Some barristers I know, we've got one here in Chambers, who is trying to conduct hearings and even trials with an iPad. I've always found that a bit difficult because, for example, when you're cross-examining, you've mm. got to put a finger in one document, you might have another folder, um, and uh, you might have three or four things open on the table at the one time. I think it's hard to do that with purely electronic documents. Mm. Um, so I prefer prefer both in these days it's not hard to to do that as to format of the brief um then i like double-sided with no staples what's your view on staples i think you staples are, are annoying staples are annoying there shouldn't be a staple in the brief yeah i mean i in terms of electronic briefs um certainly my general policy depending on the matter is um it's fine to have both but what you don't want to get into is um a uh, practice at chambers of printing out volumes and volumes of material. Um, that's the, a solicitor's job. And um, for urgent matters with a small or interstate matters with small amount of material, that's fine to print out and essentially make your own brief up, for example, if it's also got an index. But, but certainly I, I discourage uh, that. Well, it's not forgetting that solicitors can charge per page for that type of preparation as well, whereas yes. barristers te- I mean, technically can, but but don't, I think. Um, but certainly electronic briefs are becoming uh, more and more prevalent, and of course that's consistent with, um, too, the way hearings are conducted in court, in particular trials with electronic tender books and hyperlinks uh, in both tender books but also hyperlinks in lists of authorities. I think you've got to be, uh, particularly these days as counsel, have a, a degree of nimbleness about you, and I describe myself as a bit of a hybrid where I, I still have my old school paper habits, as it were, in terms of marking up briefs and dealing with solicitors. And on the other hand, I can deal with <laughs> the document management systems like relativity when I have to and look at screens in court. Well, we call you hybrid blight around here. Yeah. Um, can I ask can I ask one more point uh, mm. just to follow up? I think you said how to manage electronic documents. Mm. What you often get is um, obviously when you get a brief, the brief is and static things are happening, documents are being filed. Yes. Um, you do, and correspondence coming in, you do get a lot of FYI emails. What's your view on that? So the only communication from the solicitor, FYI, and there could be an expert report attached, there could be a correspondence attached. Um, Darren, any view, views on FYIs? I think this is almost a setup question. It's a setup, um, it is yeah. a setup question. Um, I have a very um, strong view about FYI emails. Um, I and I distinctly remember. Are they to be encouraged or deplored? Yeah, deplored. If there's to be a communication with something of substance, particularly as you say, it might be an offer of settlement. It might be a written submission. It might be an expert report. It. If there's a communication, as counsel, you say, well, what am I doing with it? What are, what am I being asked to do? Am I being asked to read it? Am I being asked to advise upon it? So FYI is singularly unhelpful. Yeah, I remember, I can't remember his name, but there was an Eastern State senior counsel who said when he um, receives an FYI and it contains a, a document of any substance, he emails back and says, would you like me to read this? Because mm. um, they can be, you know, a 100-page 
document with annexures. I mean, are you are you asking me to read that? Are you prepared to spend for me to spend a whole day and charge a day rate for that? What would you like me to do? And in addition to that, of course, um, there it comes back to my comment about working as a team and and helping each other in that that team, that barrister solicitor client team, and that is what are your views on it? Mm. What do you think is the significance of this expert report from a forensic accountant? What are the five highlight points that you wish to draw to my attention? Is there a specific issue that you want me to advise upon, particularly whether we need to get a responding report? Do we need a shadow expert? Mm. So that is something that happens, unfortunately, quite regularly. And just uh, another aspect to that, of course, and it's the, the point you made before, that um, litigation is not static. Matters evolve. Correspondence comes in. Uh, other evidence comes in as you head towards trial or, or an appeal. How do you manage, particularly if it's electronic documents such as emails with attachments? The issue there is, is it going into your brief? Who's updating the brief if it's a matter of substance? I have always had, in any event, um, notwithstanding the matter, a form of a folder, which um, back in the days when I used to junior Jonathan Wills, he would call it a running brief or a bar book. The running brief was the miscellaneous materials, correspondence research that would be uh, in your chambers. And then the bar book might be your own assortment of papers that have come through by email and so forth that is used as the bar book in court. I learned that from a very early stage and that's how I control it and how you deal with it in your inboxes and emails is another thing. You might have folders of uh, folders within folders, but th that's how I deal with the flow of information, which in big matters, large commercial litigation, even with a junior or two juniors, three solicitors can be almost overwhelming at times. Just on that, one thing that I have used and I'd recommend um, everyone to use uh, is the OneDrive folder or Dropbox. So you have a, a communal online repository of materials that the solicitor and the barrister and potentially even the client can mm. have access to. Mm. So you know you're working from the one source um, and everyone can upload uh, to it um, and download from it. And I recall working on a relatively big matter recently where I was led um, in draft, drafting the opening. You, what you can do is you or you can put a document, a Word document in the OneDrive or you know, not necessarily OneDrive and, and work on it even at the same time. So it actually you can have two people drafting different bits of the same Word document at the same time. As long as you're not working on the same bit, it's actually quite helpful. So that mm. saves the, you know, the email, here's where I'm up to in this document. Mm. And then what, do you have ownership of that? Can I work in it? Can I not? Um, so something like a OneDrive is an excellent, um, excellent there's thing to a, use. There's nothing or generally nothing more inefficient and costly than settling correspondence in committee. That, that unless it's a very important letter. Two other final observations and we might, um, might wrap up this Dynamic Duo podcast. But one comment that a solicitor might make about um, – First of all, a document management system, an electronic document management system like a Relativity, Delium, those type of, or, and you've mentioned OneDrive. Uh, and secondly, having um, the type of brief that we mentioned with the advanced witness proofs or indeed signed witness proofs is an issue of cost. Um, I've had a number of matters where solicitors have said, well, um, it's early days. Um, we haven't done that because we'd like your advice on this particular issue. 
to make sure it's got some merit and we're going somewhere before we we go to that um, level of detail uh, and get signed uh, statements and the like. Or sure. alternatively, it's just not worth enough um, to be uh, spending the type of money on an electronic do- document database. Um, so before we finalise that topic, mm. what we should do is get a solicitor on um, in the near future and they can tell us all of the annoying things that barristers do and how uh, we could better service a brief. And I'm sure there's a few, unless you're saying you're perfect, Darren. <laughs> <laughs> well, they tell me I'm perfect. Yeah, <laughs> there we go. There we go. All right. Well, look, um, it's obviously horses for courses, as I said, but um, talking generally, I think they're the the key things that certainly we see regularly in our day-to-day practice with briefing council and briefs to council, both physical and electronic. Mm. Well, that's uh, probably enough for, for, the, for the law. What are we doing now? Late September, you'd be getting excited for Christmas, wouldn't you, Darren? Well, yes. Um, I noticed the shop I was in recently that they have the tinsel and the cards and everything out. and Soon uh, it'll be the, um, you know, the hot cross buns. Start hitting the shelves. <laughs> <laughs> That's not to say you can't have hot cross buns at any time of the year because they are delicious. Of course you can. What, what are your views, Scott, about the quantity of butter that you put on a hot cross bun? Is there a specific ratio that you aim for oh, in your hot cross bun eating? Minimum one to one, I would say. And even that, the butter is a bit on the light side. Uh, so, <laughs> I mean, you can't have too much butter, can you? The other thing, as I sit here at um, Chambers looking out the window, I'm reminded, of course, um, the weather and we're in spring, but also that with spring and mid-September heading into October, the footy finals are almost over. So um, we're into the preliminary finals in the AFL. There's a match on tonight. There's a match on tomorrow. Uh, I think the local footy final, grand final, Glenelgan Sturt is on uh, uh, is on Sunday. Scott, you could walk down. To the Unley Oval and oh, watch Glen Elgin Sturt. It's not, it won't be at the Unley, Unley Oval, though, will it? Oh, actually, it's a good point. I think it'll be at Adelaide it'll be Oval. It'll be at the Adelaide so. Oval. Well, you can walk there as well. <laughs> I suppose I could if I was so inclined, but probably won't. Are you, are you going down there, Darren? No, no, no. I'm not a um, Glen Elg or Double Blue supporter, but um, it's good to see those two old faithful teams back in the finals. And tonight is GWS and Collingwood, and everyone hates Collingwood. So, and, um, well, so you, I can imagine you at home um, – McGill, there with your your footy Guernsey on, scarf. As you know, I skipped bar dinner last Saturday night to go to Port Power against GWS and uh, had two tickets with my with my eldest daughter only to see the what is called the Orange Tsunami smash Port Power. Yeah. Well, and I was thinking, and because the irony, of course, was that the Bar Association dinner was at Jolly's Boathouse, which yep. is uh, only a stone's throw from the Adelaide Oval. And at a time coinciding with almost the start of the match. So we walked down there and uh, with all of the supporters in high spirits and we saw them all coming back um, crying a river of tears. Very A lot of very upset Port Power supporters, but um, I drowned my sorrows watching the match eating a um, very large box of chips, which was delicious. <laughs> and so on that note, we've probably come to the end, haven't we, Scott? We have. So, I mean, as I sit here, I can only imagine what Will Mellor's life is like right now. So I'm not sure what the time in Italy, a bit behind us. He's probably, we're in the afternoon, he's waking up. He's probably having some kind of continental breakfast in Italy. Um, Let's conclude the podcast on this basis. The dedication of Will Miller as a podcast participant will be shown by whether he listens to it when he's away. Episode oh, five. There we go. So let's not mention it. Let's not mention it. Let's keep it a secret. And um, because this doesn't go out into the public. <laughs> 
<laughs> on that night, uh, Darren is at a convenient time. It is, Scott. Adjourn the podcast. We hope you've enjoyed listening to Is That a Convenient Time? If you'd like to suggest any topics or leave any feedback, the podcast has a Twitter at A Convenient Time, all one word. Before the next episode, please consider heading over to justicenet.org.au and setting up a regular donation. We hope to see you next time on Is That a Convenient Time? <laughs>